You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. I'm very excited today because we are starting a brand new series on the prophet Isaiah. I feel the weight of this. This is holy ground in the Bible that we are going to be treading over the next few weeks. And I need God's help, so why don't we just start by going to him in prayer. And God, we ask now, Spirit, um, we know that you have inspired this scripture. We ask that you would now enlighten our minds to understand it and to see Jesus in it. Jesus, I pray for each of us that you would open our minds and soften our hearts and strengthen our hands to fulfill what you have called us to do. And as always, Jesus, I ask that you would preach a better sermon than the one I prepared and that you would make us willing to be people who are your servants on this earth. Thank you that before we ever served you, you served us and still serve us so faithfully day after day. Pray you would help us now to know your word and to do it. We ask it in your name. Amen. So have you ever wished you could go back in time and be there for some great moment in history? Maybe it was a speech or a battle or a rock concert. I don't know, but just some moment where you think, man, I wish I could have been there. Maybe you wish you could go back so you could change history. Like, man, if I was one of Hitler's generals, right, trusted inner circle, one of those early meetings, bam, right, would have shot him, changed history. That's what I would have done, right? Or maybe you wish you could go back and benefit from history. Maybe you wish you could go back to, I don't know, like 1997, right when Apple was about to file for bankruptcy. You could buy Apple for $3.50 a share, right? Just, I'm selling my home, all in, right there, Right? You'd be doing pretty right now. Where would you go? You know, if I could go back in time, I would go back to Jesus' day and to a conversation that Jesus had in Luke 24. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of course, the pastor picks Jesus, right? He wants to go back and be with Jesus. But hear me out. Here's why I'd pick Luke 24. It's an amazing scene. Do you remember this? Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's walking along with two of his disciples, And as they're walking along this road to Emmaus, Luke says this, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them, the two disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you understand what Luke is saying? As Jesus walks with these guys, he takes the whole Old Testament And he doesn't just say, here's what it says. He says, here's what it means. And here's how the whole story points to me. Have you ever found it hard to understand the Old Testament? Been challenged. Wouldn't it be great to just have Jesus tell you what it means? That would make my job a lot easier on Sunday mornings, right? Jeff, what does it mean? I don't know what Jesus said, right? Wouldn't have to argue with you about passages and what they mean. It'd be great. Uh, and you know, you ever feel mad at biblical writers? I've got a little bit of resentment about, 
at Luke for this one, right? Because he had to know something of what Jesus said. He probably interviewed these guys. Like, why couldn't you include that, Luke, right? What Jesus said about the Bible. Don't you want to know how the whole story fits together and what Jesus thinks about the Old Testament? Well, here's the reality. We already know quite a bit about how Jesus saw the Old Testament. In fact, you get these clues throughout the Gospels of how we should put the Old Testament, the whole story, together as Christians. And I don't think there's any book that's more important to how Jesus saw Jesus than the prophet Isaiah. Why do you say that, Jeff? Well, let's let Jesus speak for himself for a minute. Mark 10, here's how Jesus defines his identity and his mission. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus defines the entirety of his earthly mission in terms of what? Being a servant. Now, where did Jesus get that idea? What does it mean that Jesus is the servant? What does it mean that we are called to be servants? You cannot understand this if you don't go all the way back to Isaiah and see what Isaiah says about Jesus. That's my thesis for today, that actually you can't know Jesus richly. You can't understand his mission fully. We can't understand our mission as the people of God unless we go back before Jesus to the prophet Isaiah. And that's why we are studying this book. Now, if you have ever read, has anybody here read the book of Isaiah? Has anyone here completed the book of Isaiah, reading it through? I, I commend you. Because if you have, you might be thinking, oh man, how long is this series going to be? <laughs> Isaiah is massive. It is complicated. It is beautiful. It's daunting. It is a daunting book, 66 chapters. I know of several of our community groups have started studying Isaiah. I know of none who have finished Isaiah. <laughs> Give up, usually in the mid-20s, right? It's just too hard. Can't keep going. So if you've, if you've finished it, I commend you. I am impressed. Uh, the prophet Isaiah lived in the 8th century before Christ. He prophesied to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and he prophesied judgment against them for centuries of idolatry. And he says, Israel, because of your idolatry, God is going to judge you, is going to send you into exile in Babylon. And that is the overwhelming message of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. It's judgment, judgment, judgment. It is impending judgment. It is coming. And finally, Finally, after 39 chapters, we come up for air, and after this word of judgment, we finally get a word of comfort. And that starts in Isaiah 40. Because see, here's what happens. Once Israel is in exile in Babylon, they begin to fear, you know, has God forsaken us? Did God just forget about us? Is God really powerful? After all, the, the gods of the Babylon seem to be helping them, and Babylon just kicked our tails and took us back to Babylon. Maybe they're the real gods, and our God is kind of weak. Or maybe our God is powerful, but he's just indifferent. And Isaiah says, no, God is not indifferent. God is not inept. In fact, God is about to display his power to you who are in exile. 
And Isaiah says that the God of Israel is the true God and he controls history and he's gonna prove it. How? Well, Isaiah says, starting in chapter 40, that, that God is gonna raise up a leader. And he calls him by name. He says, it's gonna be Cyrus, this king who I'm gonna raise up and Cyrus is gonna subdue Babylon and bring you home. And that's exactly what happens. And you fast forward, 538 BC, a Persian king named what? Cyrus raises up, subdues Babylon and issues a decree saying, Israel, you can go home. That's the word of comfort. But here's what you need to understand about Isaiah. Isaiah's vision is much bigger than Cyrus and it's much bigger than Israel just getting back into the land. Because see, God's people have a bigger problem than just being geographically exiled. They're spiritually exiled. They're spiritually separated from God. They are awash in idolatry and injustice. And the world seems to be coming undone. And so God says, I'm not just going to bring you back to your homeland. I'm going to bring you back to myself. And I'm going to restore you to a right relationship with me so that Israel, you can be this light to the nations, what I always wanted you to be. And now I'm going to work through you to reveal myself to the nations and the whole world will be blessed and the nations will come into Jerusalem and worship me as the one true God and death itself will be swallowed up and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And, and that's a big vision, isn't it? That's a really big vision of what God is about to do. Here's the problem for Israel, right? 538 BC comes along. They start coming back into the land and then they get back into the land and what are they thinking? Okay, God, fix everything and crickets, right? The, the geographical exile problem is getting solved, but they still feel the spiritual exile and God hasn't poured out his spirit and death still reigns and there's still injustice and there is no new heavens and, and new earth. And so these Israelites who are returning think what? There's got to be a greater fulfillment of what God is talking about. And in fact, by the time we get to Jesus, the Jews are still waiting for this greater exile to end, for them to be restored to God, and finally for God to work to restore the world through them. And according to Isaiah, God's redemption is going to be accomplished by this mysterious figure called the servant. He's mentioned throughout Isaiah 40 through 55. And now think about that expectation for Jews that God is gonna work through this servant to fix all the problems in the world and then Jesus comes along and says, I am what? Among you as one who serves. Immediately, what are the Jews thinking? Let's go back to Isaiah and see if this is the guy. Does he fit the description? And that's why we cannot understand Jesus apart from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the soil from which the New Testament grows. The, the New Testament writers quote from Isaiah more than any other prophet. In fact, the early Christians referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. It's the fifth gospel because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, use Isaiah so much to craft their portrait of Jesus. And they do that because Jesus used Isaiah to craft his picture of Jesus. This is Jesus Self-understanding. So if you really want to understand Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, what we are about as his followers, start with Isaiah. Here's why this is so important. The Bible is one unified story about one people of God who God is working through from beginning to end, which means the Old Testament speaks to who? To us today. It's very important. Jesus was a devout Jew. 
He was not coming to invent some different kind of religion. No, he trusted in the God of Israel and believed that God was working through him to fulfill all of his covenant promises and make good on what he had promised. And that's what the early Christians believed. They did not say, hey guys, back in the day there was Israel and that was God's plan A, but God kind of screwed up and so did Israel. Whoops, right? But here's the good news. We had God as a plan B, us. That's not the message at all. In fact, it's in spite of Israel's failures and disobedience, God made good on his promises and through Jesus, he made a way for Israel to come back to God and for the nations to come back to God and for this new people to be restored to God who can be a light to the nations. It's one story, one people, which means this speaks to us. Does that make sense? That's why we need to be in this book. We cannot understand Jesus without it. So there are four songs in the book of Isaiah, four poems that describe the work of the servant. And then there are a few passages related to this. And so we're gonna spend about eight weeks in Isaiah. We are not spending eight years in Isaiah, okay? Y'all are gonna come up to me and say, but Jeff, you didn't talk about in your rights. I did not, okay? Maybe in the future we'll do eight years, but we're doing eight months, right? We're dipping our toes. And today we're really dipping our toes, okay? I'm just giving you a taste, right? Just trying to get you hungry for Isaiah. That's it, okay? Not gonna talk about everything, but today in Isaiah 42, we're gonna meet the servant. I wanna introduce you to this character on Isaiah's terms, and we're just going to ask three questions about the servant, okay? Who is he? What will he do? How will he do it? Who is he? What will he do? How will he do it? And this sort of sets the groundwork for everything we're gonna talk about in the weeks to come. So who is this person? Listen to what Isaiah says. Starting in chapter two, verse one, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. God is thrilled about his servant. He upholds the servant. He's chosen the servant. This is God's choice man for the job. He's put his spirit on the servant. That means that this person is authorized and powered by God to do what God wants done in the world. And don't you love that? God's soul delights in the servant. That means God looks at this figure and is fully satisfied. He is the ideal human. This is everything humanity is supposed to be. That's the servant. So, million dollar question, who is he? And I've already heard some of you whispering, it's Jesus. I know the answer, Jeff. It's Jesus. And that's right. So let's go to the next question here. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No. We'll get to Jesus in a moment, but here's a problem I think we run into when we read the Old Testament. We know it points to Jesus, so we just go, oh, that's Jesus, and then we move on. But we have to look at the fact, it's not just that the Old Testament points to Jesus. How does it point to Jesus? What's the description it's giving? And if we just take the Old Testament on its own terms, what is it telling us? We have to camp out in the Old Testament for a while to see the richness and beauty of what God is saying here and not just jump to Jesus. So I know this sounds a little sacrilegious. We're gonna set Jesus aside for a second, okay? We're gonna get there. But, but I just want you to think as an Old Testament Jew, what is Isaiah saying about the servant on his own terms? What should we think about this person? And I want you to feel some of the tension and conflict here so you can feel the resolution, okay? 
Who is the servant? The obvious answer from the context appears to be not Jesus, but Israel. And you go, Jeff, why do I say that? Why is it Israel? Well, chapter 41, right before this, who does God call the servant? Israel. He says, you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, are called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. And God refers to Israel as the servant throughout these chapters. So at face value, what do we think? Man, Israel must be the servant, right? The whole nation. That seems obvious from the passage. Here's the problem with that, though. Israel as a nation, as God's servant, doesn't look like the servant of Isaiah 42.1 at all. This guy is fit for the task, whoever he is. Israel is not fit for the task of being God's servant. How do I know that? Well, if you go on in chapter 42, this gets weirder. Who is blind but my servant? (laughs) Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? Now, this is getting complicated, isn't it? Clearly, this is talking about Israel, the nation, But the servant mentioned at the beginning of chapter 42 is going to open the eyes of the blind. This servant is blind, spiritually deaf and dumb. And so this is confusing, isn't it? Well, okay, maybe there's another servant. Okay, maybe the servant isn't all of Israel in Isaiah 42. Maybe the servant is like this servant within the servant who's going to help the bigger servant come back to God. And there's evidence for that too. That maybe the real servant God is talking about here is a remnant in Israel. Isaiah 46, listen to me, O house of Jacob, that's Israel, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me. So maybe God is getting this subset purified group of people within Israel, and he's going to work through them to help the whole nation. Maybe that's who the servant is. And there's evidence for that too. If you go to the next servant song in Isaiah 49, We read this, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. This is getting complicated, isn't it? Because what do you have? You have the nation as a servant is blind, but then you have this servant within the servant who's gonna lead that servant back to God so they can serve. Everybody clear on that? Okay. Okay, so maybe it's a remnant. Well, here's the problem with viewing Isaiah 42 servant as a remnant. Uh, This servant, when he's described later, sounds like a person and not a group of people. In fact, the, the details get very specific. So maybe it's an individual within Israel. Uh, if you go and read Isaiah 50, 40 through 11, uh, the description is of a person. This is autobiographical, what's happening to this servant. It's very hard to think, how is this happening to a group? So maybe it's an individual. And after all, individuals are called servant all the time in the Old Testament. Moses is called a servant of the Lord. David is called a servant of the Lord. Maybe it's Isaiah. Is it just one person who is the servant that God's gonna work through? So maybe it's a really small remnant. That's what I'm saying. Maybe it's a remnant of one. All right? That's third complicating factor. Can I add a fourth? Is that okay? Let's make this fourth complicating factor. The servant also appears to be some kind of royal figure. Is it a king? Here's why I think that. In Isaiah 42, it says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and his delight shall be 
in the fear of the Lord. I'm sorry, that's Isaiah 11. Here's what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah 11 prophesies this coming king, the Messiah, and he says two things about him. He says, my spirit will be on him. And he said, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. What does that sound like? It sounds like Isaiah 42, doesn't it? Where I have put my spirit on him and my delight will be in him. So you have that spirit language, that delight language. So maybe this is some sort of royal figure. Now remember, I haven't mentioned Jesus yet. But let's just take Isaiah on his own terms. Who is this supposed to be? We could sum up what Isaiah says this way that it's supposed to be some kind of royal representative figure who succeeds where what? Israel failed. That's who Isaiah is looking for. Does that make sense? That's just what Isaiah tells us. And now we're starting to put the whole Bible together because God called Israel to be his servant. That's why he called them out of the nations. He says, you're gonna serve my purposes. In fact, through me, all the nations of the world are gonna be blessed, Right? But does Israel ever fulfill that? No. They are not a light to the nations. They're a blight to the nations, right? Instead of serving Yahweh, they serve the false gods all around them. Instead of leading people to God, they actually push people away from God because they're such bad representatives of God. And so what does God do? He says, I'm not giving up on my promises. I'm gonna work through Israel, but we're working through a subset. In fact, it's a really small subset of Israel. In fact, it's just one. It's a remnant of one within Israel who will be a royal figure. Now you have that anticipation and now as a Jew, put yourself on the shores of the Jordan River and Jesus is getting baptized. And what do we see at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit of God descends visibly, visibly, like a dove. You see it coming on to Jesus. I have put my Spirit on him And then God quotes from Scripture twice. God says, a voice from heaven, the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, that's Psalm 2, the King, the Messiah who's going to reign, with whom I am well pleased, in whom is all my delight. That's Isaiah 42. What is God saying here? I am putting my spirit on the King who is also the servant of Isaiah 42, follow that guy. Now, isn't that a richer understanding than just that's Jesus? (laughs) What is Isaiah saying? He is saying that there will be one who embodies all that it means to be the people of God. God always wants to accomplish his mission in the world through his people. Israel fails. Jesus succeeds. What I want you to see, though, is this connection between what Jesus does in the world and what God has always wanted his people to be, which is a light to the nations. There's a really obvious implication that that flows from this family. It's so obvious, but sometimes, you know, you got to say the obvious things, right? You can't know your mission in life apart from following Jesus. Jesus fulfills the mission of the people of God, what God has always wanted his people to be about. We are the people of God. How do we figure out what we're supposed to be doing? You gotta start by spending time with Jesus. One problem Christians go into is they just wanna go do things in the world, right? Let's just go do things, ready, fire, aim. How do you know you're following Jesus? Jesus is the one who sets the standard for what the mission will look like, which means as a Christian, the most important thing you can do each day is spend time with Jesus, Jesus. 
Before you can lead anything, you have to follow the leader because he sets the standard for what the mission will look like. He's the only one who embodies it. Does that make sense? You look at Jesus, he's the only one who has ever perfectly done what God wants the people of God to do, which means every day what I have to do is say, how am I unlike Jesus? I have to look at the Bible and say, how am I responding unlike Jesus? Jesus, make me a person who is more useful to your kingdom. I just wanna be more like you, and then you become the kind of person God will use in the world. That is step one to participating in God's mission is you have to follow the servant. Does that make sense? That's one. All right, there's like seven sermons in these next two points. I'm gonna condense it down, all right? I told you, I'm disappointing you. It's an intro. We have to cover too much, okay? Who is he? Jesus, the royal representative figure who does what the people of God have always called to do. What will this servant do in the world? The way Isaiah sums it up is with the word justice. What the servant does is he brings about justice. Do you hear that three times in the passage? He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law, which could also be translated justice. <laughs> Four times, justice. What does the servant come to do? To set God's world right. Now, this is where we have to be very careful, family, because justice is a good word. It's a good Bible word, but it's a very popular word right now. Everyone is talking about justice, seemingly, right? Like candy bar companies are tweeting about justice, right? I didn't think I'd live to see that, but it's happened, right? Everyone is excited about justice, and it's funny how things go in and out of, like, style, in culture, right? Like, I have a child of the 90s. Any children of the 90s here? Like, when I was growing up, yeah, there he is. All right, um, I, like, the word everyone used, you remember this, was tolerance. Everyone was talking about tolerance. It sounds so funny now to say the word tolerance because no one says it, but it was just like relativism, man, like pluralism, like we've all got to be happy and like just put up with people. Don't be fundamentalist, right? You just need to, you just need to calm down. That was tolerance, right? And now it's like, don't calm down. Don't tolerate things, right? Justice, like that. And so culture changes, right? And now here's the danger for us as Christians. Sometimes in culture, people use the word justice and they mean things that are biblical. Sometimes people use the word justice and they refer to things that the Bible does not focus on as being the core of what justice is about. Sometimes in the culture, people use the word justice to describe things that the Bible would call injustice. Now, here's why that's dangerous. When something is so pervasive in the culture, there's two dangers, right? Either we assume that whenever we read this Bible word justice, we just import whatever the culture means. Right? And think, oh, that's what it means. And we can't do that. We've got to let the Bible define its own terms. The second danger is we just go, oh, well, justice is a cultural thing, not a biblical thing. Here's the problem with that. The Bible talks a lot about justice. Which means this, we have to let the Bible define its terms of what God's justice will look like and then weigh other definitions against that. Does that make sense? I told you I'm gonna disappoint you, so I'm just gonna give you a brief definition that doesn't answer all your questions, but this is dipping our toes in, okay? God's justice, we could define it this way. What will the servant do? The justice is God's blueprint for God's world. 
Justice is God's design being realized for the world. The Hebrew word translated justice here is mishpat, which is a great word. There are a lot of great Hebrew words, right? Mishpat, that's a great one. Sometimes it's uh, defined as command or judgment, but the idea here is a standard that belongs to God. A great example of this would be in Exodus 26, God gives Moses the plans for the tabernacle, and he calls it the justice of the tabernacle, the mishpat, the plan, right? What's he saying? Here is my blueprint for how I want my house to look. What is justice? It's God's blueprint for how he wants the world to look. That's what justice is ultimately, and the kind of justice that God has in mind and the servant brings about is way bigger way broader, way deeper than anything the world has to offer, right? This isn't just about who you vote for or getting your policies right. This is justice that heals all of creation from all of its problems. The, the kind of justice, well, let's just look at what he's talking about here, okay? Verses six through seven, he defines God's justice here. Here's what the servant will do. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is what justice enacted looks like. And it's huge. When God sets the world to right, it's vertical and horizontal. The primary way God sets the world to right, the foundational way, is by fixing what? Our relationship with who? Him. That's the foundational thing. We have a broken relationship with God. He sets it to right through Jesus, right? That's what it means that he's a light to the nations. The nations are in darkness, spiritual darkness. They worship false gods. So God's justice is fixing that broken relationship between humanity and him and setting it to right. Does that make sense? Because that's God's blueprint, to live with humans. It's vertical and horizontal. It's restoring not just us to God, but restoring relationships with each other. It's personal and it's corporate. It's fixing things that afflict us and that fix human relationships writ large. It's physical and spiritual. Isn't it amazing when Jesus comes and establishes God's kingdom on the earth, physical blindness is healed spiritual blindness is healed, right? And Jesus always meets both needs because the kingdom of God is breaking in, right? People's stomachs are fed when Jesus comes around. Their souls are fed. Dead people come back to life at funerals. Imagine that. And people get spiritual life in Christ. It's physical and spiritual and it's retributive. It's paying back sin with punishment and it's restorative. It's restoring image bearers to what they were meant to be. See, often when we use the word justice, what do we mean? We mean people getting what's coming to them, right? That's what we mean by justice is, oh, they got justice, right? They got theirs, right? That was coming to them. Justice is served. That is part of God's justice. That is part of God's justice on the cross. He repays. He punishes sin. He will return and punish sin, but see, there's this other part of justice. If justice is setting the world right, justice always mean, also means restoring humans to what God created them to be. 
Because God created image bearers to flourish and have dignity. So part of biblical justice is setting those things to right. Because God didn't create people to be oppressed. God didn't create people to go hungry. God didn't create people to get sick and die. God, you see what I'm saying? And so it's far broader reaching than just punishing things. It's restoring things and healing things so that the fabric of creation itself is healed and this world becomes what God wanted it to become. So when God's justice is enacted, it's vertical, horizontal, societal, psychological, behavioral, familial, it's everything. And actually the whole created order getting fixed so we can live with God forever. Jeff, how does that work out? What should I do as a Christian? I don't have time for that, okay? I got five minutes. But it's important that our plumb line be the Bible when we're talking about this and not the culture. And here's the implication that we need to see. The servant's role is big. He brings redemption everywhere redemption is needed. And where is redemption needed? Everywhere. If sin breaks everything, Jesus' work is to remake and fix everything and renew it to be what it was ultimately created to be. Does that make sense? Now, here's our problem as Christians. We have a tendency, I have a tendency to limit the redemptive power of Jesus and what he can do. All of us have a tendency to say, Jesus won't work here. Jesus won't work in this sphere. For some people, it's a place. Jesus doesn't work in that locale. It was funny. I went around the country, right? I was on sabbatical. And I would drive places and tell people I was from California. And they'd be like, oh man, California, am I right? Like, what? Like, like, well, are you moving here? I'd be like, no. And they'd be like, what? You're not moving here? Everyone I meet from California is moving here. You know, it's just some hellscape there, right? Are you like, no, like, it's 110 degrees here. Like, (laughs) like, I can't breathe. Like, I, I don't know how you live here. Like, I'm dying, like hellscape. Look where we are, right? Like, but, but there's this sentiment, right, as I was driving, and not everybody, but some people are like, oh my gosh, this God-forsaken place called California, I can't get out of there soon enough. And it's this idea, well, I guess the glory is departed, right? God can't work here. So some people limit to a place. For some of us, it's a sphere of our life where we just think, well, God won't work at my work. Because I know those people, and I know the boss, I know the culture is just too dysfunctional, right? God can't redeem things there. He can't change people. He can't change the way we operate our work culture. Some people, it's our neighborhood. They know me already. They know I'm a Christian. They're not interested. Moving on, right? And and so much of what we attempt in the Christian life is based on what we expect God to do, isn't it? And if you just don't have much expectation that God is gonna act, you're not gonna have much faith to do anything. So where is that place in your life where you compartmentalize and just said, I don't think God's gonna act redemptively there. We all have one. I'll tell you mine. I was very convicted this summer looking at the ministry of physical healing in the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of physical healing in the early church and how normalized that was, the amount of physical healing that happens around the world today, so many stories of miraculous healing And if you just took the Bible on its own terms, there is no reason not to think that God still heals miraculously today. There is no reason not to think that. In fact, the biblical evidence would go much in the different direction that that is a sign of the kingdom of God breaking through until Jesus returns is that people get healed in ways science can't explain. 
You know what I don't pray for very much? Physical healing. I'm talking persistent, anoint with oil, lay my hands on, expect Jesus to do something. Healing, why don't I? It's not because of the Bible. It's not because of what God is doing in the world. The amount of healing stories are insane. It's just that I don't think God's gonna do anything because I'm very conditioned to be a materialistic, naturalistic Westerner who wants to fix everything with medicine. Where do you compartmentalize? That's where I do. So I'm praying for healing more and I'm expecting God to do things. Now, he doesn't always heal. Jesus didn't heal everyone. The apostles didn't heal everyone. There are some things that do not get healed until Jesus returns. And if you're not healed right now, it's not your fault, okay? Some things don't get fixed, but some things do. And it's a sign of the kingdom's power. Don't you wanna see that? I wanna pray like that can happen. I was so convicted reading a book about healing and, and the guy in the book, he prayed for, for 200 people to be miraculously healed. And he said, in my experience when I do that, you know, about five to 25% of people get miraculously healed. And I'm like, five to 25? Now, there's no guarantee God will do that, but I'm like, if I knew I was gonna pray for 100 people and five of them are gonna get miraculously healed, wouldn't you pray? Just going off the data, right? <laughs> So again, where are we compartmentalizing the redemptive power of Jesus in our lives? That's mine. All right, last one, then we're done. Who is he? He's Jesus. What does he do? He sets God's world to right in every way. How will he do it? This is the most astounding thing of all about Jesus. How will Jesus set the world right? He will do it gently. He'll do it gently. Listen to this description. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This figure is clearly a um, king with royal power. Have you ever heard a king described this way? How do kings fix things in the world? That's how they do it. They make the laws, they get the biggest, baddest army, and they crush people into submission so that good things can happen. That is the power of the kingdoms of the world, and this king has a power unlike any of them. He has the power to actually change things through gentleness. It's amazing if you read this passage in contrast to Isaiah 41, where God talks about raising up Cyrus. And God says, I'm gonna raise up Cyrus, and Cyrus is exactly the kind of king you think he's gonna be. He's terrifying. He's got the scariest armies. He's gonna grind the nations into, into powder. The coastlands are terrified by him, and Israel's gonna benefit from basically the biggest, baddest, meanest dude on the block. That's earthly power. But here we have a king who has all the power, and he is the most tender with the most bruised. A bruised reed, that word bruised is, is light. It's a shattered reed. It's a reed that's almost useless now because it's so beat up. The, the one that's just about to snap, he knows how to mend it back to health. The smoldering wick, there's barely any flame left. I got no energy left. I'm at my wit's end. Jesus knows how to keep that flame going and to fan it into flame. This is the incredible thing about Jesus' ministry. 
What, what do kings want? They want a platform to be heard, right, to get their message out. Jesus worked in obscurity his whole life. He didn't even want the religious leaders to know what he was doing. Jesus was clearly the most powerful person in every situation. He would look at the most powerful earthly authorities and just say, you're a pawn in God's plan. I know who's in charge. And yet Jesus would take the most oppressed, most beaten down, most sinful, most ugly people, and he knew how to be the most tender and gentle. And Jesus Christ never loses a patient. He is the great physician, and he knows exactly how to care for you in your deepest pain and deepest guilt and deepest ugliness, and that's who Jesus is. And that's how his kingdom comes to bear in the world. Have you ever seen a king like that? And ultimately, Jesus' greatest power was the power to restrain himself and submit to the Father's will and die as a servant to fix the world. Now, if you are following that king, what does it mean? It means that God's reign in the world, how is it going to be extended through you? It's going to be through meekness, not through pure might. If you are following Jesus, it is your humble submission to Jesus and your gentleness toward people. That's what God uses to unleash his power and change people and win people and change people. And so I have to ask for myself, how do I think God's gonna use me? Because here's my temptation, right? You see something wrong, you ever think this? I could fix that. I think that all the time. Maybe I'm arrogant. But I could, if I just got in there and raised my voice and I love to talk, if I just talked enough to this person and gave good enough arguments, and had a plan, I can fix this thing, right? Just need to assert my will. And then you live a little bit. And you realize how impossible it is to change people or to change circumstances. And you realize, oh, Jesus, you've got to do all the heavy lifting. And so what does that mean when I enter a situation? It means that, that I am not going to be quick to speak or quick to spout off what I think to do. I'm going to say, Jesus, I don't know what to do. What should we do? And Jesus, what do you give me to do? And I'm gonna be prayerful and I'm gonna be dependent and I'm gonna be restrained toward that person and I'm not gonna insist on my own way and I'm gonna trust that Jesus is gonna be doing the heavy lifting and that he's gonna change hearts and minds and overturn things. Are you living that way? Are you parenting that way? Are you resolving conflict that way? Because if you trust that this is how Jesus works, you're gonna live that way. This is how his power comes about in the world is through gentleness because Jesus is a gentle king. That's the best news in the world because the reality for us is this. We are the shattered reed and the smoldering wick. See, who is Jesus? He is, who is the servant? It's Jesus. He's gonna establish God's justice. He's gonna do it gently. But before you can follow Jesus and serve him, you have to realize your need to be served by him. You have to realize I am in desperate need and what I need is not just someone to follow but a servant who can heal my deepest wounds. And there is something in the human heart that just bristles at the idea that I need someone else. Seriously, it is so deep. Let me give you an example. So my, my wife calls me this week. I'm working on my sermon. It's Thursday. We gotta get done. I get done on Thursday, right? And she calls me right as I'm about to, trying to get done, and uh, 
I'm not punishing you right now, I promise, with the sermon illustration, yeah. Uh, no, but she calls me and she's like, I'm on my way to work, right? She's got a shift at the hospital and the tire is flat. It is totally flat. I'm on the side of the 13. Can you come? And because I'm a great husband, I said, yes. And I came and I gave her my car and it was on the driver's side, right? So I, I couldn't change the tire. So I had to wait for AAA to come tow it to a safe place. And, and I'm just sitting there feeling helpless, right? Because that's what you do. And I'm like, oh, man, should I try to change it? I don't know. And I'm sitting there looking at my phone. And, 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 and this woman pulls up in a car and she says, hey, you look like you need help. And I'm like, no, I'm just calling AAA. I said, hey, thank you. And then I'm like, well, I look like I need you. <laughs> and my voice dropped. Oh, no, I'm good, thanks. Uh, you know, just wait. I got a safety tow over here. They're on the way. I got to change the tire. I'm going to change the tire. AAA's not going to change the tire. I'm going to, actually, I, it looks like you might need some help. Do you need me to change your tire? I could, uh, <laughs> I could change your tire. I know how to do that because um, I'm a man. Um, but like, just the fact that she asked me, I was like emasculated, right? I'm like, I know how to change a title. Get out of here, right? What are you gonna do, right? Like I, and what is that? That's just pride. It's just we bristle at the idea that we might need help, and yet if you don't need help, you don't need Jesus. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you think you're righteous, Jesus isn't going to be good news. I'm the great physician. I did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. Until you realize I'm sick, Jesus isn't good news. If you are a healthy, righteous person, you're going to be frustrated with Jesus. And here's why. Jesus does not live to serve your agenda. He's a king. And so if you want to get on Team Jesus because you think he's going to bless your agenda for fixing the world, guess what? You're going to be profoundly disappointed because Jesus is not taking orders from you. He is going to confound your expectations. He does what he wants to do in his timing, and he ultimately doesn't really care about your opinions about how to establish the kingdom of God. He doesn't because who are you? He's the king. But if you come to him, and say, Jesus, I am burnt out. I am at my wit's end. I find life unmanageable. I have no power. I am ashamed of what I've done. I feel bad. I feel guilty because of what's been done to me or ashamed because of that. I feel powerless. Guess what? Then Jesus becomes the most tender, powerful physician in your life who will meet you right there every time and give you rest. He never loses a patient. So before you serve Jesus, you gotta be served by him. The good news is he always wants to serve you again and again. He is not put off by your need. He's inclined by your need. That actually draws his heart out to him. Like a mother hearing the cry of a child, he is inclined to you when you cry out in pain. That is him. And so if you have never decided to follow Jesus, here's what I would say. If you know you're sick, if you're like, yeah, I'm bruised. Yeah, that the... The, the flicker is there. I'm barely holding on. Jesus wants to serve you today. And if you want to follow him, you can pray with me and you would pray something like this. You'd say, Jesus, thank you for being my servant, the king who serves me. And, and Jesus, I admit that I have done wrong. 
that it has consequences, that it deserves punishment. Thank you for dying for my sins to forgive me. Thank you for rising to give me eternal life and eternal flame in you that will not be extinguished. Jesus, come into my life, heal me, save me, and make me the person you want to be. I follow you as my king. Amen.